All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. To be or not to be a successful film adaptation of one of the most prolific writers in world history. When something so revered in popular culture is transformed through the cinematic medium, there's a tense feeling in the air. Will this work? Will they be able to capture the human imagination exactly as it had been pictured across hundreds of thousands of minds for centuries? Can the same minimalistic techniques of Shakespeare's work be recreated in a medium that feeds on detailed depth? So we start out this conversation of Worthy to talk about the 1948 Best Picture winner, Hamlet, which is based off of one William Shakespeare. Uh, Just to give some numbers to Shakespeare's career, he had 37 total plays. And at one point, the Guinness Book of World Records listed 410 feature-length films and TV versions of Shakespeare's plays, making Shakespeare the most filmed author ever in any language. IMDb lists Shakespeare's having writing credits on over 1,600 films, including those under production but not yet released. And the earliest known production is King John from 1899. So this is a pretty prolific guy as a writer, I would say, John, right? Definitely, yeah. It's kind of amazing. I think until we got into this point for this film, it was like hundreds of Shakespeare adaptations have already happened. So it's pretty amazing that, I mean, I think it carries over and it makes sense because his work is kind of defining genres and it's defining character arcs that we have come to learn and know today. So it makes sense why we've used him as like a template and why it's still being made and still his work is still being adapted today. Yeah, and it's not just that his work is singular to one genre. I mean, he has romance, history, drama, and comedies, kind of covering everything you'd ever want to talk about in a film or use. Blending of genres, too, which is, like I think, really what he's known for as well. Oh, yeah, so it's 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 prolific. And to kind of sit here and, and try and be like experts on Shakespeare wouldn't do it necessarily justice. But what we can sort of start this conversation and talk about is film adaptations, and specifically using a Shakespeare play as a film adaptation. And so uh, honestly, when I, when we first started talking about this podcast, uh, you know, I said, one of the things I kind of proposed to John as an episode idea was, is it fair to use Shakespeare? Is it, is it fair that something so great and so beloved can easily just be taken and used as a screen used on the screen through, you know, the cinematic lens. So I want to kind of ask you that, John, is this like a cheat code? Is it just, like the best is it just like the easy thing for any production company to do to be like okay we need something successful let's just make a Shakespeare play no I think in terms of just popularity I think you could even compare him to like the Bible as a whole where it's there's so much stories under Shakespeare and those stories have been remade and you could even watch something and we'll definitely get to some films where you don't even tell that it's really like an adaptation from Shakespeare and I think that's a huge compliment just because he creates these stories that are kind of mendable and moldable that you can really relate to because they're really simple kind of uh, about human tragedy or kind of human traumas that you might experience throughout any life and I think that goes without saying throughout time whether it's the 1500s where people are watching his work in like the Shakespeare Globe Theater or even up till today where we're getting a new adaptation of Macbeth later this year by one of the Coen brothers so I don't think it's a cheat code I think you could look at you know text throughout history as being templates for telling stories and whether People say they're based on like real life stories, whether Shakespeare is even a real person. I don't think any of that really matters. We have the text and the actual words to kind of carry on. So, no, I don't think so. What, what do you think about that? I Yeah, I, I think that I do kind of think it is a little bit of a cheat code. 
But I also think that it depends on the person who's making it and how they are able to adapt it. You know, there, if you look at just the films that were at least nominated and slash won an Academy Award, it kind of repeats a few times. You have A Midsummer's Night Dream is the first one from 1935 to it won Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing. You're going to have a couple of Romeo and Juliet's in there. Hamlet is done a couple of times that there's three versions of Hamlet that were nominated or won, including the Best Picture winner that we are going to be talking about. You have Richard III, you have Othello done multiple times. So it's sort of like the same ones that are done over and over again. And I don't know if that's just because that's the ones that people find to be the most interesting. But then you also look at the films that are based off Shakespeare work, which includes West Side Story, which is the 1961 Best Picture winner, obviously based off of Romeo and Juliet. And you get to some interesting things like The Lion King, 10 Things I Hate About You, She's the Man, all based off of Shakespeare plays. And I... I guess we sort of have to toss Shakespeare and love in this, even though it's not based off a Shakespeare play. Sure. It's about Shakespeare, but that just completely ruins the whole like sanctity of Shakespeare. But to come back to the original point is that really essentially this film version of Hamlet is one of the most revered and most respected Shakespeare plays. So the last question I kind of want to ask you, John, is like, what was your relationship to Shakespeare coming into this film? And how do you actually read or seen Hamlet as a play in class before watching this version of it. Yeah, that's really tricky because I think for a lot of people, Hamlet is very academic because it's forced upon most people in school, whether that's like middle school or maybe even early on if you're getting into like fifth grade or sixth grade, you might be kind of experienced in reading some of his work and later on his more like violent or darker work and in, in maybe middle school or high school. So I think for a lot of people, they kind of hate Shakespeare just because it's it's a language that's kind of foreign to us, even though we can kind of clearly kind of get the point of what these characters are saying. We can kind of understand the themes and plots, but the language is such a large barrier. It almost feels like a, a foreign language when you listen and watch these films or read the work. So I always think of that. I think of school, and I was telling my girlfriend before we started this that I was basically saying, like, if I could talk to my middle school self and be <laughs> like, yeah, you're watching Hamlet. And then you're like researching Shakespeare, researching Hamlet, like trying to dig deep as much as possible. I would laugh and say there's no way that's true because I hated it growing up. Like I hated most of the fiction that was kind of pushed on us in school because it's it's forced on you. Right. So it's like forced requirement reading, just like everyone hates summer reading. Not many people remember fondly looking back at those books. So I definitely think of school. I definitely have some more stories when it comes to Shakespeare and, and the Globe Theater which was a theater that was built in, in 1599 and then later on rebuilt in 1996. And I did a semester in London where I got to go to the recreation of the Globe Theater. And that was a really special experience. And I didn't, I don't even remember honestly what play I saw. So it obviously didn't infect me too much, but I think <laughs> I remember the building and the atmosphere and it really felt like its own little world inside of there. And you could really, it felt like you were transported back in time. So you know, I've grown to appreciate more and more because like we've kind of already talked about, it's their kind of archetype and their themes that have carried over throughout not only film history, but fiction and, and really just storytelling in general. So yeah, I really appreciate it. And I like this film a lot more than I really expected. But Ben, tell me some of your memories of Shakespeare. Yeah, I actually, um, I, I really like Shakespeare a lot. I um, I did take a Shakespeare class in college. I was a English minor. So as I push up my glasses and be all astute and and uh, for me, I, 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 yeah, I've always loved Shakespeare. Hamlet was actually one of the plays that I didn't have to read in high school. I just didn't come across. But I love Macbeth. I love Richard III a lot. And I've seen like multiple, 
you know, uh, you know, different versions and different plays of it. You know, I love West Side Story, so I guess I'm a sucker for Romeo and Juliet. But but this one, Hamlet is considered, you know, Shakespeare's best work. It's the most uh, lines and and most writing that he did put into a play. So this one is kind of the like the big mountain to climb uh, when discussing Shakespeare. So, John, I need to ask you this question. Is Hamlet worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1948? Hamlet. A prince of Denmark seeks revenge against his uncle for killing his father and fiends insanity to buy time to develop and implement a plan. The action begins on the battlements of Elsinore, where a sentry, Francisco, is relieved of his watch by another sentry, Bernardo, who, if yet another sentry, Marcellus, has twice previously seen the ghost of King Hamlet. Marcellus then arrives with the skeptical Horatio, Prince Hamlet's friend. Suddenly, all three see the ghost, and Horatio demands that the ghost speak. The ghost vanishes then, without a word. Inside the great hall of the castle, the court is celebrating the marriage of Gertrude and King Claudius. Old King Hamlet has died apparently of an accidental snake bite, and his wife Gertrude has within a month of the tragedy married the late king's brother. Prince Hamlet sits alone, refusing to join in the celebration, despite the protests of the new king. When the court has left the great hall, Hamlet fumes over the hasty marriage, muttering to himself the words, and yet, within a month, Soon, Horatio and the sentries enter telling Hamlet of the ghostly apparition of his father. Hamlet proceeds to investigate, and upon arriving on the battlements, sees the ghost. Noting that the ghost beckons him forward, Hamlet follows it up onto a tower, wherein it reveals its identity as the ghost of Hamlet's father. He tells Hamlet that he was murdered, who did it, and how it was done. The audience then sees the murder reenacted in a flashback as the ghost describes the deed. Claudius is seen pouring poison into the late King Hamlet's ear, thereby killing him. Hamlet does not at first accept this as the truth, and then prepares to fiend madness, so as to test Claudius' conscience without jumping to conclusions. The fiend insanity attracts the attention of Polonius, who is completely convinced that Hamlet has gone mad. Polonius pushes this point with the king, claiming that it is derived from Hamlet's love for Ophelia. Polonius's daughter, Claudius, however, is not fully convinced and has Polonius set up a meeting between Hamlet and Ophelia, Polonius's daughter. Hamlet's madness is a constant even in this exchange, and Claudius is convinced. Hamlet then hires a group of wandering stage performers, requesting that they enact the play, The Murder of Gonzago, for the king. However, Hamlet makes a few alterations to the play so as to make it mirror the circumstances of the late king's murder. Claudius, unable to endure the play, calls out for light and retires to his room. Hamlet is now convinced of Claudius's treachery, he finds Claudius alone and has ample opportunity to kill the villain. However, at this time, Claudius is praying and Hamlet does not seek to send him to heaven, so he waits and bides his time. He instead confronts Gertrude about the matter of his father's death and Claudius's treachery. During this confrontation, he hears a voice from the curtains and believing that it was Claudius eavesdropping, plunges his dagger into the curtains. On discovering that he has in fact killed the eavesdropping Polonius instead, Hamlet is only mildly upset, and he continues to confront his mother. He then sees the ghost's apparition of his father, and proceeds to converse with it. Gertrude, who cannot see the ghost, becomes convinced that Hamlet is mad. 
Hamlet is deported to England by Claudius, who has given orders for him to be killed once he reaches there. Fortunately, Hamlet's ship is attacked by pirates and he is returned to Denmark. In his absence, however, Ophelia goes mad over Hamlet's rejection and the idea that her own sweetheart has killed her father, and she drowns, supposedly committing suicide. Laridus, Ophelia's brother, is driven to avenge her death as well as his father's. Claudius and Laertes learn of Hamlet's return and prepare to have him killed. However, they plan to make it look like an accident. Claudius orders Laertes to challenge Hamlet to a duel, wherein Laertes will be given a poisoned blade that will kill him with a bare touch. In case Laertes is unable to hit Hamlet, Claudius also prepares a poisonous drink. Hamlet meets Laertes' challenge and engages him in a duel. Hamlet wins the first two rounds, and Gertrude drinks from the cup, suspecting that it is poisoned. Whilst in between bouts, Laertes rushes Hamlet and strikes him on the arm, fatally poisoning him. Hamlet, not knowing this, continues to duel. Hamlet eventually disarms Laertes and switches blades with him. Hamlet then strikes him in the wrist, fatally wounding him. Gertrude then submits to the poison and dies, warning Hamlet not to drink from the cup. Laertes, dying, confesses the whole plot to Hamlet, who flies at Claudius in a fit of rage, killing him and then dying. Horatio, horrified by all of this, orders that Hamlet be given a decent funeral, and the young prince's body is taken away while the Danish court kneels and the canons of Elsinore fire off a peal of ordinance in respect. Hamlet starred Laurence Livier as Hamlet, Basil Sidney as Claudius the King, Norman Wooland as Horatio, Terence Morgan as Laertes, Jean Simmons as Ophelia, Peter Cushing as Osric, Eileen Hurley as Gertrude, Stanley Holloway as Gravedigger, Felix Aylmer as Polonius. Hamlet is directed by Laurence Olivier. Written by Laurence Olivier based on the play by William Shakespeare. Produced by Laurence Olivier. Music by William Walton. Cinematography by Desmond Dickinson. Film editing by Helga Cranston. And art direction by Carmen Dillon. So, John, to be or not to be, that is the question, right? That is thy question. That is thy question. I only think of Billy Madison when I hear that, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think of Shakespeare. That's unfortunate. Yeah, that's, I think that's, honestly, I think it's acceptable. I think I think good old Billy Shakespeare would would appreciate He would approve, yeah. <laughs> he, he would, would approve. love that comedy. He would. So, yeah, so Hamlet, I, you know, after I watched it the second time and sort of talking to John as we were preparing for this episode, I kind of wanted to just take the approach and just kind of say up front, like, we're not going to, like, just break down this story. I think this story is, like, it's, a, it's as is and has probably been dissected countless hundreds of thousands of times. So I don't think that me and John can add anything new to that perspective. But what we can add is talking about the actual film and the actual cinematic techniques that were used for this film. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was thinking the same thing. Like, if you really want to learn about Hamlet or you want to learn about the actual writing, I'm sure there's plenty of podcasts that are all dedicated to Hamlet and his work. So, yeah, like Ben said, we're not going to go too far into it. I think the plot elements will come up when we're talking about, like, the cinematic elements, like the cinematography. But I wanted to jump in, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah. And ask a question because I don't know if this is true or not, but we kind of start with a voiceover that introduces us. And I know we had that with Rebecca, but we get a voiceover from Laurence Olivier's Hamlet pretty early on, right? And have we had any voiceover yet and a Best Picture winner yet from one of the characters? I don't... 
I don't think so. I don't think so either. We have Rebecca with the opening, right? And that kind of haunts you into the movie. But I can't think of a single best picture that we've spoken about that kind of has voiceover from some of the characters or any of the characters. Right. Well, we've had like Mutiny on the Bounty and like Gone with the Wind with like the scrolling like credit text. Yeah. But but never like an actual voiceover. Like an inner monologue, which Hamlet has kind of throughout moments of this film. And it's an inner monologue, you know, that wasn't even in the original play. And there is some criticism about that. So this whole opening monologue ends on a pretty controversial thing. So the line is, this is the tragedy of a man who could not make up of his mind. And a lot of people find issue with that because it, it's like there, no one really, people have like debated about like what actually is going on with Hamlet. Is he actually going mad? Is he just like pretending to be mad? Is he just pretending to, to go crazy to get kind of get through the plot and like sort of like grief? Yeah. Yeah. Is it his grief? But for this one, for, for him to openly say, like, this is the tragedy of a man who cannot make up his mind, sort of changes it for some people, some Shakespearean purists. I actually thought it was a really kind of juicy line, and I actually liked the way that Olivier adapted this Hamlet for film because it's way more psychological than, than, the, than the play version of it, and I like that. I've admitted I love psychological thrillers, and this one really digs deep into that. And I think that's something that with film actually helps Shakespeare's plays because you can do a little bit deeper dive into a psychological mindset instead of it just being relied upon on a play and on the stage. It's an interesting way to open up the movie. Yeah, I'm not sure too much of the original text or the actual really faithful adaptations and how it differs, but I'm curious, what do you think making up his mind is? Is it making it up about whether he should kill the king, whether this actually happened, whether he loves his mom? Love loves his mom. <laughs> yeah, uh, what yeah. do you think? Yeah, I, I think that that's the that that's his dilemma is how do I deal with what I'm being dealt with? How do I deal with the death of my father? How do I deal with my mother getting remarried to my uncle? And how does how do I deal with that? Because it seems like the world is working sort of against me is, is what seems to be Hamlet's issue. And honestly, like it's kind of also hard to buy into him being a younger guy because Olivier is 41. At the, oh, I definitely wanted to stop yeah, and talk about that. Yeah. For a so little bit. it like definitely like stops you for a moment when you first get like get introduced to Hamlet and you see him and, but, but in overall big picture, I do think that that is what that line is referring to is that he is just struggling to figure out what he is supposed to do now with the cards that he's dealt with, which is the whole plot of the story is like, well, do I rat out my uncle or do I go after him? Do I kill him? Do I not kill him? Do I be or do I not be? <laughs> it's interesting because, like you said, it's it's really distracting initially. And you kind of have to just buy that with Lawrence Olivier as Hamlet. And I don't know too much about his entire past and history, but it feels like a director who's just wanted to make this his own way for like the longest time or an actor who wants to make this project and has always envisioned this being like a cinematic work beyond just the actual writing of Hamlet. And maybe it just took that long until he could kind of get the financing or it took that long in his career to really have the kind of backing and the strength behind his career to be like, I'm making this, I'm making it exactly the way I want to. I'm producing it, I'm directing it, I'm acting in it. But he is his own worst enemy in a way where it is really distracting how old he is and his mother's played by someone who's 30, he's 41. And it's really obvious that this character is supposed to be someone who's almost pubescent, like 17 or 18, right? And Hamlet's supposed to be really undecisive because of his age and because of the trauma that he's kind of put through. So it is like always a barrier that you kind of have to jump over and go through. But 
I think there's so many great things in this film cinematically that go beyond that and kind of take you away from that. Yeah, and from what I've gathered and researched about Olivier is that they, like this was his shit. Like <laughs> like Shakespeare was like his forte. He is he was one of the the premier actors that would perform Shakespeare plays on the stage. And then he became a movie star, so it, it does feel a little natural. I mean, the year before uh, that this Hamlet came out, he had done Henry V, which got him an honorary award from the Academy. And I think people were probably thinking, like, whoa, this guy, like, made you know, filmed his own version of a Shakespeare play, and it was, like, really good, but they were probably a little hesitant to, like, actually award it Best Picture, was nominated for Best Picture, was nominated for Best Actor. Hey, you know what? Maybe it was better than Gentleman's Agreement. Let us know what you think. <laughs> but ultimately, this version of Hamlet and this film, from a technical standpoint, is really good. And and, and that's where I really wanted to start, is to open up and talk about just the, the look of this film, because that's what jumped out to me immediately, was this Elsinore as a set was crazy cool there's so much different influences you can take from that and then the way it was filmed was really impressive there's like these huge establishing shots that like sets up every scene but also i don't know if it was a steady cam i don't think i don't think it was a steady cam they didn't have that Just at that point nice crane yeah the like best a crane they could get. like a really good crane that got these really great tracking shots and, and crane shots that really made the film is what it is so immediately john i just want to ask you like what do you think of the whole design of the film because that that's what stood out to me first. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. Elsinore is gorgeous, and it feels like a labyrinth in a way, where every new scene kind of reveals like a new section of the castle, and you're just kind of like, what is going on? There's like endless amounts of uh, waves and rolling clouds throughout uh, the opening kind of couple scenes because they're on top of of the castle, and I really loved it. The big beautiful matte paintings, like you said, the cinematography is like it has its own omniscient presence and i'm sure that's kind of coming from the ghostly figure of of the king returning and using the camera to kind of represent like spirits or like ones who are kind of left remained you know in some other elderly world or something like that yeah i even read that someone interpreted that as god like looking down on them yeah it definitely could be it definitely could be to me it felt like it wasn't uh it was omniscient so it wasn't just one particular character it wanted to follow it felt like this was beyond just hamlet and and the camera following hamlet like you definitely feel that throughout the film with even ophelia and her death that we'll definitely get to you feel that just the camera's there watching and and no one's really noticing it and it kind of guides you to the action but sometimes it just takes you away and just shows you parts of the castle in elsinore and it's it's gorgeous it's some of the best cinematography i think we've seen yet honestly in a best picture yeah i i definitely agree and and just going back to the set design and as you know we call it beautiful and it's it's twisted it's dark there you can tell there's like this history to it it's also very minimalistic which i i like that and and the reason why there are a couple of reasons why i like that one because it's simple and it doesn't feel too gaudy and doesn't feel like it's so in your face trying to be this like old you know it's, it's supposed to take place in denmark but like this old victorian age kind of style and look but what it, what it does is it honors the actual Shakespeare plays that would happen at like the Globe Theater because they didn't use these crazy sets to pull off these plays. They just use minimal designs, minimal set pieces. You know, if it was a forest, they probably just put like two trees at the side of each stage. Like, and they're like, okay, we're in the forest now. Yeah. And paint some trees in the background and be like, we're deep in the forest. Now. Right. So it's just like it, and it plays more on the audience's imagination. And this does that as well. But what it does is it adds so much depth because 
it's huge. It's very, it's very cavernous. And because it's so cavernous in the way that it's lit, there's so much black in the backgrounds that you are like, Oh my God, this just goes on forever for and forever in this castle that you can just feel the enormity of it. And you believe that it's real and believe that, it's, that it exists, but it also creates a really appealing visual for the audience because it's so twisted and, and just, it, it probably hasn't, wasn't like seen up to that point for a Shakespeare play. Um, or a Shakespeare film, I should say. So I really wanted to give kudos to the set design and, and the look of this film just because it, it really stood out. And as an adaptation, it works. Yeah, it's really grand. And Elsinore, the castle, it feels like a monster in some way where like the deep hidden shadows, they kind of like consume characters. People go in and out of the frame, but the camera will just kind of go off on its own. And it's really magical, honestly, at some points where it does feel a little bare in some ways but that bare aspect is like huge like never-ending walls where it feels like these characters are like tiny and i think it adds to the history and it feels like there's been many hamlets throughout time and that there's been many people and i think we get that through some of the actual texts in in the play and in the film where you know we have the the grave digging scene where we kind of see some of the history of this castle and the legacy that people have left behind and i think that definitely really adds to it and it grows and it just feels like this never-ending labyrinth and you really get stuck and caught into it and it takes a little bit to kind of digest Shakespeare and I think that's kind of well known especially at this point and it's definitely become easier to digest as I've gotten older I definitely have more of the patience of this and I think about I don't want to bring this up to argue about um, Hamilton and the, the Broadway kind of film adaptation but really just the recording of the actual show but I think that it's really easy to just set up a camera or a couple cameras and kind of break apart a production on stage and show that as a quote unquote film. But this like really wants you to dive into the set. It really wants you to feel like you're there or you're like on this roller coaster almost trying to like find and grab onto something while these characters are insane and going mad essentially. So I really appreciate that. And I thought that was really great. And I think it's one of the most dynamic like Broadway adaptations or not just Broadway, but you know, musical, not musical but <laughs> plays that have been adapted. So yeah, I was really astonished and really kind of sucked into it after the first kind of like 25 minutes. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And and that's why I wanted to ask, like, is this like a cheat code? Because you could just simply film a stage version of this. I mean, I don't know if you know about this, but I think I'm about to tickle John's fancies right now. But did you know that Tom Hiddleston played Hamlet? Do you know that Benedict Cumberbatch played a Hamlet on the stage? Yeah, like every hot British actor yeah. has basically done Hamlet. I know. Well, I just know as you as like a Marvel fan, you would probably if like you knew that that they were going to be ha- they just filmed a version of those plays, you'd probably be like, I'm going to fucking watch the shit out of that. I would definitely watch it to like see their performance, but I think that's just like an issue with like Broadway adaptations. I think it's a great thing to have just because being on Broadway or being plays that are on the West End in London, they're can be really expensive and it's a really hard thing to do and it's still kind of part of the only upper class upper middle class that are able to see these so when that does get adapted i think it's a great thing it's really awesome and it's funny that you reference those actors are in the mcu or they're in the kind of cinematic marvel universe but in a way shakespeare almost feels like the first film cinematic universe where it doesn't all tie in like the films don't have to relate but there's this ongoing kind of like connection to these and, yeah. and the style of writing obviously coming from one person and it almost feels like the first franchise in a way. I mean, it's obviously not. We have earlier franchises from like Universal Horror Films and stuff like that, but it feels like this ongoing legacy that still kind of continues and people pass the torch from director to actor. So I kind of yeah. love that aspect. Of I, it. I definitely can agree with that, especially when you look at 
his work. I mean, he has continuations of of the Henry V. I think it go. I think it's Henry the Fourth, then Henry the Fifth. I'm any Shakespeare people who are listening. If I just botched that, I'm so sorry. I think it's Henry the Fifth. Yeah. Yeah, but no, but I think it go. But it goes from like one Henry to the next Henry. Like he has multiple plays like that, and so and that and that's mostly his histories. But regardless of that, um, you're right. It does feel like this is like the first like big like franchise type of thing that the world had and, and I think that's totally fine and acceptable. And what I want to touch upon next, which you sort of touched upon, was the actual writing of this film. And it's great writing. But then what happens is you make it into a film and you try to have people watch it who are not used to speaking old English or, or hearing things in old English. So then subtitles sort of become a necessary thing. And when I put on subtitles, I usually don't like putting. Yeah, I was going to say you never put subtitles I ne- on. I really don't like putting subtitles on. I think it takes away from the from the film. But that's I, ridiculous. That's I, my opinion of that. <laughs> <laughs> I I I've seen. I saw the film before. So I think sometimes when I rewatch it, I'll then put subtitles on. But for the first time watching, I don't like it. But for this watch, that I did it, which is my second time watching it. I was like, okay, let me put on subtitles. Let me just try and like follow along a little bit better. You know, I. You know, I love Shakespeare, but yeah, it's definitely not the easiest thing just to casually it's, it's watch. It's dense, yeah. I think yeah. that's the best way to describe it. Really oh, yeah. Dense. It's extremely dense. And and having the subtitles, and it kind of helped with the flow of the of the film better, And but it really drew me in. And also, I was paying, I think, closer attention to what was on screen because I like could follow along that much better than I did the first time. Um, but so I just wanted to add that like having the subtitles for this like really helps to like watch this film and I think actually enhances it because you can follow along and then you feel you know even like you feel like you really understand it maybe that's just yeah. my own issue with no my... i i did that as well and i do that for most of the films we watch i think you know going through the earlier years it has a different kind of language and uh, rhythmic language that we're just not used to with like the old kind of uh, early 20s films that we kind of started to watch and started with the best pictures i needed those subtitles to kind of get through some some moments where i was kind of unsure of what characters were kind of really saying back and forth to each other so i, I do think it's necessary and it does help this film feels longer than I think it's two and a half hours or so. It does yeah. feel longer because of how dense it is. But in a way, you could kind of break this film up in intermission, like maybe after the play version of showing the king's death. I think that's like a good end point. Uh, yeah. Kind of halfway through, they cut it off. And, and that's where it really picks up and where the tension builds between the king and Hamlet. So just to kind of bounce off that really quickly, people do talk about how like this was the like heat. Olivier slashed a lot from the story. Oh, yeah. And um, he took out even some characters that, that people were like, well, why would you take those characters out? They're like, you're not supposed to take those out. But upon like reading like them and what they added, they like just added a little more political aspect to the film. And what Olivier was trying to get to is more the psychological aspect of the story and and really focusing and, and honing in on that. So I kind of, I was okay with that not being a true adaptation, but would you want, and there is a four hour edition of Hamlet that Kenneth Branagh did in, uh, in the nineties. That is as word to word or, you know, line to line page to page as the actual play is like, was that something you would want to seek as like a, you know, as a, as a film fanatic, you know, they're like, Oh, like this is truly it. Or do you kind of like that? It was it was adapted and used film and the film medium to kind of make it a little bit different, so it was more digestible. No, I'm very much about breaking down stories and finding the core and either manipulating it in some way that it still honors the original work, but it grows and it becomes a, a piece of cinematic history. It's not just 
a Shakespeare play anymore. This is 1948's Hamlet by Olivier. So it's it's its own work, and it you know while it borrows so much of the words, I think it's it's up to the creator to kind of adapt and, and create their own work, you know. And I'm totally the person who says we really need more films that are under two hours. And I think a great example of kind of speaking about this is. One of our first experiences with Shakespeare, whether we know it or not, is The Lion King. You know, Ben and I are, are 90s kids, so Lion King was just established with us as soon as we were born. So it was something that we watched growing up as a kid over and over. I can say that I, like, burned out that VHS. And yeah. that movie, there's I don't know the runtime off the top of my head, but there's no way that movie is two hours. or It's probably not even close to two hours. But It's probably an hour, 25, 30 minutes. Exactly. Tops. And that film is so emotional and impactful, and it's very much the same story. It's just kind of digestible for a kid. And, and a family to watch and I think that's a perfect example of it you know you're you're changing the the work and the literature so much that they're animals that are talking and you can still kind of pass off the themes and the characters and the relationships so I think it's it's amazing what you can do with you know a piece of literature or any kind of a pre-established piece of fiction and then add up and kind of change that and work it into something else and I think that is really kind of in particular you can see that with not only the characters that he removed from this version of of the adaptation but also in Hamlet and his relationship with his mother the way his like father talks to him as a ghost and kind of communicates with him is very different right oh yeah 100% Uh, it's it completely it uses film to work work in that story it you know it, it just makes it easier for the audience to to accept and and to understand like what maybe the intention was for certain you know monologues or inner monologues within the play that had to be spoken out loud but when it's done differently in the film it it adds more to it it really plays more into that psychological aspect so one you know last thing on that is the, is the inner monologues because it's a film there were more voiceovers so there are scenes where it's just hamlet walking around with a blank stare but you're in his head because he's talking and thinking which again like it adds so much more to the story itself and to what Shakespeare couldn't get into, which is the psychological stuff, which makes this more, it really feels like a film noir at times. There's like this mystery that's going on the way, the way it's lit really adds to that. So I really like, that was one thing that really stood out to me as wow. Like that's one of the benefits of, of adapting Shakespeare on a film is that you can have actual inner monologues and you can, and then that actually enhances the story and the characters themselves. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, Laurence Olivier really heightens the sexuality and the aspects of kind of the romance elements of this and makes it kind of this weird, twisted relationship that I think you don't really see that much, if I remember correctly, from the original Hamlet. But in this way, it kind of changes it and it really keeps Hamlet as like a forceful drive who's keep has to moving forward while everyone thinks he's crazy he knows that he's right and he has his goal in mind whether we as the audience think he's right or not is I think such a great aspect of this this production and especially in this film where the camera becomes this like being like it's God right and we get the first taste of that with Hamlet speaking to the king and it's this huge like figure looming over the clouds wearing this awesome armor I made a note being like that is some dope armor that that uh, ghost is wearing but I love the moment where he's finally speaking to him and he's he's kind of hearing the, his father kind of explain to him how he died. And we like slowly just like zoom or crane into the back of his head. Right. Like yeah. thinking about it from his perspective and the way Hamlet sees it. And 
is that the way it actually happened? We don't know. I think that's part of the magic of Hamlet and, and not knowing whether Hamlet's really insane or if he's just making the story up in his head to justify his actions. And I think that's amazing. And I think this is what Lawrence Olivier does really, really well is that he really gets inside of the characters' heads. And we even see that later on with Ophelia, who has essentially like a sex fantasy about Hamlet, who she's like waiting for him to like come to her with his shirt unbuttoned and to kind of confess his love for her and take her away and, and treat her the way that she's always wanted to be treated by him. So I think he bumps that up and he bumps the, the sexuality and the relationship between all of them to, to build a lot of tension and then to get to the amazing duel. It really feels satisfying in a way that uh, I don't think I've ever really experienced watching Hamlet or reading the original work. Yeah, 100%. But let's actually get into the ghost because that's probably the most innovative part of the film. And we talk a lot about how these Best Picture winners should feel like they're actually forwarding film and the film technique and and, and how you can use a camera and, and lighting and, and sound effects to do something different. And it, we've expressed frustrations on films not doing that, but this one really does a great job about being experimental. And, and the the pinnacle of that is the ghost of Hamlet of King Hamlet. And one, I think we should just, the design really cool. They, I, I don't even know how to like properly describe it because it's so shrouded in clouds, but yet in darkness. Yeah. Yeah. But yet the, the face is almost skull like, but it also has like this like iron mask over him. Super spooky. It, it's super spooky. It looks like he's levitating off the ground. Yeah. And like, and I was trying to think of like, have we seen, a ghost type of thing like that yet yeah, in a best picture movie and we've seen one and that was uh in sunrise when the that's right when yeah. the man is imagining the woman from the city sort of like caressing him and and holding him yeah right but that was more like they took two strips of film and slapped it together yeah definitely yeah. so that was probably how they did that but this one i i'm still i don't know how they he really pulled this off it had to have been someone in some elaborate costume on like a yeah like all perspective work and right on he was probably staying on like apple boxes there's probably tons of smoke machines on the yeah. sound stage <laughs> probably <laughs> just burning real things to make smoke at this point <laughs> maybe there's no smoke machines probably yet but yeah yeah but just the but just like the visual effect is really cool but then the sound effect is the coolest part and what i read is that he probably he had like multiple tracks i think up to 16 different tracks of of audio that he had like men shrieking and, and women yelling and screaming while he was also doing this like ghostly effect and no one really actually knows who voiced the ghost of King Hamlet, but people seem to kind of guess that it actually was Olivier who did it. There there was, there's debate about who did it. It's uncredited role, but regardless it, it's this really cool vocal effect that he that it does. And I could imagine 1948, the people like me, you're sitting in the theater and having never seen this was like, Johnny looking at this, this is pretty fucking creepy. Right <laughs> yeah. Now. Like this is insane. Yeah. I don't know if there's any shots where you see like both of them in frame. I think it's mainly like, perspective point of view from hamlet and then cutting back to hamlet and, and the ghost perspective but it, that doesn't like shy away or take away from how amazing it is and how amazing the editing is and how it builds you up to this point where you see the ghost really early on but you don't really understand why he's there or like what he's kind of trying to project and, and put on the people around the castle until hamlet kind of later later on and talks to him and you know he tells him about his death and basically sends hamlet on his quest and on his mission and on his hero story, basically. So yeah, I love the look of it. I thought it was really fascinating how they did it and made him feel like such a larger than life force and this like deep booming voice. And if it is Laurence Olivier, which a lot of people, like you said, seem to, to believe it is, I think that's perfect thematically. Like this is 
in some ways you can look at this film being Hamlet projecting all of this into his own mind and convincing himself of all this. And if that's the viewpoint you want to take, him being the king himself, being that inner voice, it makes perfect sense. That like perfectly equates and, yeah. and makes direct sense. Uh, but even if it's not, it's he's part of his blood. Like like that's his legacy. And even to kind of relate to his having the same exact name. So I love that aspect. I thought it was really cool. And there's more fantasy elements to this film than I remember. Like in the other adaptations or, or the original play that I that I've seen. Yeah, certainly. And I again like that. That was something that I really liked. But let's actually talk about. Olivier as Hamlet himself we haven't had a chance to really break down the performance and overall performance fantastic right yeah it's great I think his presence is a little odd I think with how old he is and the costuming is a whole nother bag I think we'll definitely get to I have a specific question I want to ask about that and it's definitely something that you're not really used to watching especially since all the films we've really watched so far kind of either within the same year that it's supposed to take place in or it's kind of a couple 10 years or so back so this was a kind of a big jump for us and especially being like it's it's a own British film but in terms of Laurence Olivier I I enjoyed his performance I think a lot of people could watch this and just be like oh my god this is like the most overacted film I've ever seen but you know Shakespeare is so like poetic and and expressive and he wears his heart on his sleeve and I think that's what's amazing about Shakespeare is that uh, you can kind of digest and really break down these lines and how complex they can be and and really beautiful and poetic they can be but yeah I think Olivier it's clear that he has such a passion for this and he bounces back on like that insanity where even you as a viewer you're like whoa this guy is wild he goes from like a two like whispering speaking to like a 10 you know screaming and and being so emotional which I think is where he kind of really shines that like really intense like burning fire that he has inside of him so I really loved him I mean he has to carry a lot of the scenes in this movie and he really kept it fresh and and energetic throughout yeah I mean I, I I think so too I think there's no room for subtlety in Shakespeare actually and I I like it how over the top it can be and, and, and the feel of it. I think that it works for the source material. And the reason why there's really no, you know, no space for subtlety is because when you think about how these plays were actually acted, they had no microphones, they had no like stage lighting. It was just, the actors had to just boom and, exactly. re- and really deliver mm-hmm. themselves on stage when the original versions of these plays are being made. And one thing, yeah, he kind of has like a goofy wig on, which it's, yeah, I was it's, texting it, you like, this is the craziest hair I've ever seen. Yeah. But I, I did find, uh, you know, some nuggets about him and, you know, Olivier liked to change his appearance and from role to role, he like, he was addicted to like the extravagant makeup and, and designs he could use for himself. And he even said, I can never act as myself. I have to have a pillow up my jumper a false nose or a mustache or wig. I cannot come on looking like me and be someone else. And we've seen Olivier before in a best picture winner in Rebecca. And he does a little bit too. It seems like there's some like extra makeup that he puts on. You know, he has like that, that like fake mustache or might've been a real mustache. I don't yeah. Know. I'm not sure, but he definitely does like to add to his appearance. And it's a early form of method acting. I, I would call it just, just to dive into the role. And, and again, like it, it it's clear like how you know how much heart and soul he's putting into the into the work not just as an actor but also as a director to make this good and i i i appreciate it and i think it works really well i think those actors are the two things like they either hate who they are who they really are so they have to like dive deep into a performance constantly i know there's definitely actors that like work constantly probably because they just like 
are either so bored with like the mundane aspects of life yeah. or they hate themselves so much that they like need to be someone else for a little bit to kind of like refresh or like reset their mind. And maybe that's not the case. And I'm just projecting so much on that, but he seems like someone who's like so focused on his craft. And I think that just, it shines beyond just being a best picture winner, but it shines throughout his entire career. And I'm sure we'll see him again. So let's get into a, uh, a different, scene in the in the film and that's the play within a play uh shakespeare loves to do this he has tons of tons of his work has plays within plays uh in it and the reason i wanted to talk about it was one it does is a great nod to the actual productions of shakespearean times again they just have a single tree <laughs> as the set piece for the film mm-hmm. uh, or for, for the play i mean that uh, these wandering uh wandering actors you know put on and so i really like that but also it had this like really tense moment as King Claudius is like watching. He's starting to realize, like, oh shit, this is about me. And then he, it becomes sort of, I'm not going to say like exactly like a horror film, but it has this like horror element where he's really freaked out. He is, but like, just, he's like, put on like lights. I need lights. I need to put it on. And then it gives me one of my favorite shots. And I don't know if you remember this, but when he starts screaming for light, who shows up but the no chill Hamlet with like a torch going like ha <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's almost comedic in a way yeah but I, th- I I loved it yeah I think there's comedic aspects to Hamlet you know the way he kind of like is going mad in a way and the way people see him in his perspective but yeah I love this weird like the murder of Gonzago which is the play that he kind of adapts in the film that he translates to be his father's death or the way he sees or the way his father told him that he died and I have a couple of things about that death and how no one noticed like leaking poison out of the king's ear if that's actually how he died and it's funny that they considered a snake bite being like the reason of death and if that was not the case like no one questioned like whether they wanted to see the snake bite like there's a lot of like things that like don't really make sense but you just kind of have to accept it and this is like an, a revenge plot in a way and you have to buy into that but yeah like you were saying it's it's almost feels like a horror film because it's really suspenseful and he's so good at like keeping the frame and the shot going without any dialogue and that creates like this really tenacious moments and this this really like thick tension where characters are like looking around and i think we see that later on in the duel where there's so much like anticipation of what might happen or what character knows or what a character might be thinking and for a a, a screenplay that is written mainly by shakespeare that has so much dialogue and and kind of goes out of its way to over explain things i think he takes that and and breaks it down into being very filmic where it's really intense and you're like waiting on the edge of your seat and you are just waiting for some twist to kind of turn or to hamlet to kill the king or what's actually going to happen i think that has to be with the editing and with uh, olivier's direction and i think he really amplifies the work because of that yeah and i like how you brought up the whole point of that like no one was really checking on king hamlet in this actual supposed like snake bite and that's again like that's hamlet's whole thing is like well, did he actually kill them or did he not <laughs> yeah. actually kill them? And that's why he puts on this plays because so he can be like, oh, yeah, Claudius definitely killed him. Yeah. But then what that leads to is, and you've referenced this, is this like Oedipus conflict that's going on between Hamlet and his mother. Um, and it's it's a little weird, but I think there is a little. <laughs> all right, it's very weird, but there is reasoning for this because I, I was reading up on this and apparently Sigmund Freud had written a whole uh you know, had written a whole thing about Hamlet and the Oedipus conflict and, and his own interpretation of it. And 
so then reading that and then reading some more and being like, oh, well, this was in the back of people's minds when this movie came out. So people really read into it. And whether Olivier was like insistent and, and deliberate in in showing that and enforcing it more and more. I mean, yeah, he kisses her uh, on the lips many times. Maybe he that was an off screen type of thing that he was trying to do. Uh, but also at the same time, it's like very in your face about it. And so, yeah, there's this like Oedipus conflict, which again, adds this whole other psychological layer, which again is what Olivier is trying to do with this adaptation is to get into the mind of Hamlet and be like, well, there's a lot more that I can do now with film, with showing all this off. Yeah. I think you could see the scenes with Hamlet and Gertrude, his mother, and see that as like his anger at his mother for marrying his uncle and essentially being one of the hands and killing his father, whether she knew it, he doesn't really know. He's kind of accusing her that like, there's something wrong. And if you're not on my side, basically, then you're against me. And I think with those scenes, there's definitely the weird kind of sexual tension. He's talking to her so close. It's so dramatic. He keeps like hugging her. Like he wants to kiss her, but he, he can. And I think if you were to just watch those, you'd be like, it's really, really, really dramatic. And obviously they're talking about the death of the, their husband, her husband and, and you know, his father. But I don't think you really get that sense completely until you add Ophelia to the story. And like I was saying earlier, Ophelia also has an inner monologue and almost like a sexual fantasy where she wants Hamlet to come in and like sweep her off her feet. And then a couple of scenes later, it's Hamlet actually meeting up with her and it's real life. And he just completely rejects her. He's like trying to convince her like the truth that his father died and no one's listening and no one understands it. And she's also kind of believing that he is crazy and, we like later on get to her plot line and his constant rejection to Ophelia, which I think just adds to it that he, he has mommy love. It's simply that he has <laughs> a love for his mom that goes beyond, I think just a mother and son son relationship. I think it goes deeper and maybe that broke him from his father's death. Maybe he's always had that kind of love in this film or this universe of Hamlet, but I think it's definitely present there. And I think it, you would have to be blind to, to, <laughs> to not see that. Yeah, 100%. And I'm glad you brought up Ophelia, uh, played by Gene Simmons, not the Gene Simmons of Kiss, different Gene Simmons, uh, because I didn't necessarily like her character or her performance. Interesting. I, For some reason, it seemed very goofy. I, I actually liked her performance a lot. I think she, the actress was 18 at the time, and I found her kind of charming, like this like obsessed young girl, and she felt better casted than even Olivier did, even though he's obviously an amazing performer and, and quite uh, amazing at his craft. She just felt like she fit the role better, and she's had this kind of like love obsession, which I think we can all kind of relate to being that, that age. Yeah, I, I definitely can see that. I just, I don't know, just something about her seemed off to me. It And maybe, and I want to also ask you about this, is about the pacing, because whenever it was just her scenes that were going on i kind of just didn't care too much it didn't feel like you know i know it was like part of the plot but it doesn't really like forward the plot too much because ultimately what her plot is and what her father's plot is is to kind of be like oh is hamlet mad which is done by other characters as well and then it leads to the whole like battle at the end because laredus has to avenge his father and and his sister so I know that like it's part of the traditional aspect of the play, but I, I do wonder if that was toned down a little bit with the Ophelia parts, although it, it probably couldn't because that is really big part of the source material, how that would have then been projected on film, literally. <laughs> um, but I, just, just for me, it, it was a part of the film that I just didn't love, 
But I do think it, it adds more to the psychological part, especially because the end of her character arc is it's left of a, to a mystery as if she kills herself. And I think it's kind of apparent that she kills herself, but it's not directly apparent that you see it on screen. It's it's a weird almost fantasy again with her where she's kind of caught in up in a fantasy. And I think the moments leading up to her death, you don't even realize that she is kind of attempting suicide is she's walking through the corridors of the castle, like pretty high up, you can kind of tell. And, you know, the camera's following her like you've seen the camera follow other characters throughout the film. And it feels like it's trying to get to something. And, and she the camera almost like loses her. Like if it, this is God that's watching right. over them, it kind of like he lost a daughter or like he loses her and and that's signifying like her death. But then it cuts to down below where you see her kind of floating in the lake or in the lake or the river next to the castle. But she's alive in a way. And I don't know if that was supposed to be like her fantasy of like, this is what death is like of of her suicide. And she's being like washed down the river because she seems kind of like happy in a way when she's like gliding, holding flowers down the river, but she's still alive. Like she's not just like dead on impact. Right. Right. Well, well, people think she could have drowned that that was her, well, they kind of say that because that scene starts and she's floating down the river and I didn't really appreciate her arc really until I went back and watched some of the key scenes and especially this scene of her death where she floats down the river and then you get some voiceover saying like she she just basically lost it, you know, she drowned and she died. And to me, it's like the shot leading up to that was a fantasy in her mind and like this was her death and we don't see her die or like drowned or splat, but to me, she jumps off the castle and she dies. And I don't really remember what exactly it was like in the original play. But to me, it's like she's committing suicide intentionally jumping off because she can't have the the one love of her life. Yeah, I, I think that is probably is a way to interpret it. I, I think it is supposed to be left up to a mystery. But it also leads to Hamlet and the old, the most famous lines like I start we started this whole podcast with which is to be or not to be whether it is noble in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep which is it's the most prolific writing probably that, that Shakespeare has done it's the most well-known writing that Shakespeare has done and in that scene to me watching it does feel like it's Hamlet being like, should I kill myself <laughs> to, yeah, to be I, or not to be? But also it's his, the whole rest of it. He's thinking about just the human existence and the human condition of like pu- putting yourself through life. Like, should we be putting ourselves through these tragedies? Should, is it worth to take all these like hits throughout life just to live? And I, and, I, and to me, that's very powerful. And in the way it's shot, I think is actually really powerful because he's sitting on top of the castle He's holding a dagger in his hand and he drops the dagger and it almost is like he's sitting on that edge. But then the dagger drops and he's like, oh, I should move back a little bit. Like he realizes like that would be him if he would actually jump. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. And whether it's like he doesn't want to deal with the existence of the pain of losing his father and no one believing him and everyone thinking he's mad. Or if you want to really take it into the the whole motherly aspect of it. And it's a forbidden love in a way where he is just so beat down that he, he can't be with his mother whether it's that direct of implication, whether you want to see that or not, or if it's even a combination. I think for me, it's kind of a combination of everything. Like I don't want to be uh, constantly heard. And, and when I try to tell people my truth and, and try to reveal the truth, everyone kind of thinks I'm crazy and kind of beats him down further and further. So yeah, that that's a really powerful scene. I think still holds up today. And it's some of that subtext where it's directly blunt telling to be or not to be, whether to exist or not to exist, but also, 
it makes you question as a viewer why he feels that way. Is it beyond just one of these aspects or is it a combination of the two? Or really, I think as a viewer and as an audience member, you could kind of take it multiple different ways. And I think that's why, like we talked about in the very beginning, why Shakespeare is still around and still being adapted to this day. Yeah, certainly. And just one, I think, last thing of wrapping up uh, Olivier's performance is what was your favorite aspect that he brought to the performance itself? Was it his delivery? Was it his you know physical performance? Because he is all over the place, his movements, which I think is really good. And then also it could just be the way he designed the character, the way the look of it. I think the look of it is probably the worst part for me, <laughs> to be honest. And let's talk about costumes after this, too. And I I think it's definitely his performance and his delivery. I think I mentioned a little bit earlier that he goes from like a one to like this almost interpersonal monologue of him talking to himself, sometimes out loud, sometimes in his head. And then he kind of explodes like why like shaking Ophelia at one point being like, you don't understand. Like, why are you not understanding what I'm going through right now? And I thought that was really what, what was amazing. And he definitely pushed the character, I think, to make it feel a little bit older. He's not as kind of like whiny and mopey about some of these things but it's it's more passionate and i think he takes it on a very serious note and yeah definitely with his movement I, I totally noticed that i think it felt very much like part of the play where he's trying to take up the entire scene and the stage and and really trying to express more than just the words but also physically on film to show that on the camera so yeah i really enjoyed a lot of his aspects but uh what do you think what is your favorite aspect of him i i agree i think it's the way he carries himself i think is the most fascinating actually I really like his whole intro to the film and w- and just to go back to the beginning of it he the way he's introduced is he's sitting at the end of a long table and it's a whole celebration of Gertrude and, and King Claudius being married and he's sitting there like a pouty asshole essentially being like oh wait 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 me and then the camera it starts out really wide and just and again it's, it's using the crane it goes right into him and then boom like Hamlet it's like almost like the light turns on and and there he goes you just let him start going and then and from there it just keeps ramping up and ramping up and it's just full throttle almost pretty much from that scene to the end of the film where i mean you texted to me hamlet really has no chill (laughs) and and it's true he just he just goes and 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 that's what i really like about about olivia's performance is that he really holds nothing back but yet he adds so much of the aspects that of performances of modern day that i really like which again is a psychological aspects that that he's suffering and dealing with something in, internally and yet it's not ex- exactly said but it's expressed through his facial expressions through his movements through the way he delivers and talks to other people um so overall i i really liked his performance and so yeah we should talk a little about the costume design of this film because I mean, I really liked it, but you seem to have like something you really want to talk about with this. <laughs> I want to ask one particular question. Go for it. And how do you feel about the the King Claudius and his beautiful leggings? How do you feel about them? <laughs> I I, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I it, yeah, it felt like what we're used to seeing like kings and kind of seeing pictures and watching some of his work on yeah stage it, you know? yeah it just feels like an actual like time of Shakespeare and and that's again like going back to how Livy adapted this is that. It feels like this, like they took the the costumes from like a Shakespeare, you know, production. So that the, that feels authentic to it. And then all he did was just like expand upon the minimalistic set design, but made it really grand and and actually real a real space for uh, for the the story and production itself. So I I think the costume design is fantastic and, and just it it keeps 
adding layers and layers to the story. It makes it feel authentic and real to a Shakespeare play. Yeah, definitely feel, makes it feel real as a Shakespeare play. But to me, my I like prefer more of like a grounded or more grounded or gritty kind of version. And I think of like a recent film like Green Knight, which definitely has a lot of Shakespeare kind of uh, references and nods and cinematic elements to it. And that has a much like kind of darker, dimmer, like and not in terms of cinematography, but in terms of like the look of the characters, it's it's more muted and everyone's like dirty and it's like, you know, it feels more lived in. And while the castle kind of feels more than just a, a set and it definitely feels larger than life, the characters still kind of feel like props in a way. And I think that's just kind of ad- adapting and, and taking over from the work and trying to honor Shakespeare in that way. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's just more of a personal preference for me. And yeah, I don't I don't really have anything bad to say about it. I think it's just kind of a direct correlation between the two. I just wanted to bring up the king <laughs> because he's got some tight leggings on and we do see some other leggings throughout the movie and um, they all do. They all do, but I think the king, I think it's just how high up his like <laughs> coat is. Yeah. So it's like you're getting a lot of grundle, you're getting a lot of crotch in there. And uh yeah, it's just kind of funny. It's just part of the stage. Yeah, I'm just a child. That's, yeah. that's what it is. <laughs> no, it's all good. But let's uh, let's sort of kind of bring this whole thing to the end and to the end of the film itself, which is this really intense fight that happens between Hamlet and Laredes. And there's like this hidden drama because Claudius gave him a po- gave Laredes a, a poison sword. He wants Hamlet to die like and he has even a poison cup yeah. uh, to give to Hamlet in case he doesn't get stabbed. And one of the things that I really appreciate about this sword fight is, again, it starts really grand and open on this huge wide shot. And as the crane goes in, as they start fighting, you think, oh, it's going to attract the fighting. But what it does is it suddenly just goes right to Gertrude, his mother, and the cup that's next to her. Yep. And so it adds more drama because your focus isn't on the sword fighting. Your focus is now on the cup. Well, it's both in a way because you right. know that they're both kind of they're both just elements of fire that you know that someone's going to get hurt. Like multiple people may die. We don't know. And that kind of builds up the tension so much, just like I think in the play where you're watching their reaction to it earlier on and seeing like, Ooh, like are people going to realize this is in reference to the King or is Hamlet going to realize the swords poisoned or is, you know, Gertrude looking at this cup as if it is poisoned or, you know, whether you want to see that either or I think we can definitely dive into. Yeah. Well, one thing I also want to add to that is that because it's a focus becomes on the cup and the poison itself, it almost starts to add this. It, it represents a slowness to the film, but a slowness in the sense that of the creeping death, that is right uh, that is about to happen that's been creeping up this whole entire time for two and a half hours that death is upon everyone and there it is in that golden cup and i I just find it to be visually like really fascinating and and i appreciate that olivier again was deliberate that he could have just stayed could have stayed like really big and really grand and to shut off the sword fight how you would have seen it in a play because if you're watching it that's all the focus would have been on but he focuses more on the creeping death aspect of the poison and, and because of the slowness of a poison, how it can kill you. Not not so quickly, but just the, the idea that like he did something different. And and again, like that speaks again to what film can do, that you can focus on different things, that you can make it different, that you can adapt it differently, which adds to the story, which gives a different perspective on it. So there's this really great sword fight. I am a sucker for sword fights. If it's good sword fight, I'm going to love it. I really love this sword fight, and it's funny because I, you know, we really love the technical elements of this, and the cinematography at this point has been like so engaging, and, and really keeps me locked into the film. And when I knew the duel was coming, I knew that's such a strong aspect of the film and in the story. I was kind of worried. I was like, oh, this is going to be so clunky, 
And I don't know why I thought that would be, especially with how well the film is made up until this point. And again, I was kind of shocked by just how engaged I was in this actual fight. Not only do you have that really tension, dramatic element where you're like watching the fight, but you're also like, oh my God, cut away to the fight. Like, did she drink the poison yet? Like, what is she looking at? Like, you get like multiple engagements of tension and that builds, and it almost makes the fight feel even more dramatic too, because it's like, is Hamlet going to see it? Does Hamlet even know the sword is poisoned? And then on top of it, this the fight is shot in a really dynamic way where like the cameras are kind of free flowing and the editing is really intense and it's like cutting on hits. And at one point, like the, I could see people in like audiences back in the day, like jumping at the shot where they're fighting and they kind of clash swords and the sword like almost pokes to the camera and like into the camera lens. And it's really intense and and way more dynamic than I expected from a Shakespeare like adaptation. Yeah, I agree. It's engaging. It's really fascinating. I love the detail that, uh, the end of uh, Hamlet's sword is like a bald tip, so it's, it wouldn't actually penetrate someone. Yeah. So it, it's like these, it's just like subtle details that again that Olivier focuses on that he's able to focus on that that again adds to it. So Gertrude drinks the poison. She's. I think intentionally. I think our description w- says intentionally. Would you say so? I don't know. I I'm actually surprised to think that people would say it's intentional. I felt that it was. I mean, it, I can definitely see that. I think of it still that I think it's a little bit of both, but then how it like, I don't know how she would know that it was poisoned unless she was like a really good alchemist and like understood. I'm trying to think in the story, like she doesn't like overhear them, but I think she just knows. I think you just has that motherly instinct. No, I think you're getting shots of her reacting. And like when the King is pushing the poison, he says like multiple times, like, Oh, here's a drink. Like you got to drink Hamlet drink, even though Hamlet's like still fighting. He's like trying to push this onto him because I think at this point the king is getting tired of this. He's like, this is old. Like, kill this guy already. Like, I can't take this anymore. And that adds to the tension on top of it too. And I, to me, it was like a definite look of she's looking at her son. She's looking at the king. And this is like her final arc and, and kind of decision to like support her son over this new man, over the uncle. So I really love that aspect. I think it kind of redeems her. I, I don't really think Gertrude is that engaging of a character because she's kind of a stagnant character that kind of just gets yelled at and and is there to not really add much other than tension for Hamlet himself. So I think this really kind of like redeems her character in a way that makes her much more interesting. And I think in the play version, if I'm correct, is it's much more ambiguous and she kind of dies by accident, which I think is not really that interesting. I think that's not as, as thematically related to the actual film. And I think it adds to her character and her love for her son Hamlet way more. Yeah, I, I definitely can appreciate that, the, the way you put it. I, I think that, yeah, it definitely does add, again, Olivier's influence and what he's able to do differently to make it more his version of it. So she's dying. Hamlet sort of gets struck by the blade, but he doesn't know that it's poisoned. He then is able to switch blades of Laertes, which I thought was like kind of like a neat little trick. Really cool. Yeah, then he stabs Laertes in the wrist, and Laertes is poisoned, and so now... We have three people who are poisoned. Gertrude starts to die. And then Laertes says to uh, says to Hamlet, be like, yeah, your uncle is the one who's putting this whole plot together. Yep. And then Hamlet with, you would assume at that point he should have started dying based on like the it's time. It's a slower death, it's a very, it It's is in a, his arm, so it takes a little bit, <laughs> I guess. Well, I want to talk about him getting struck first because it's like a break in the fight almost where 
I don't know, Horatio, I think, maybe talking to Hamlet. And then that's when Laredes kind of, he just, like, I literally had to keep rewinding because I'm like, oh, so fast. Like, how did that happen so fast? How does he get hit? And it's because he's a cheap shot. He just goes really quickly while they're not fighting and, like, slashes his arm, which I was just like, holy shit, like that. Like, every time you think you're going to, like, lose patience in this fight, it constantly keeps you engaged. And the fact that he fucking stabs him into the wrist, basically, like, going directly into his vein, I thought was metal, very metal and intense. And and visual was like, whoa, like, that's that's intense. And I, I do have, like, some issues with how the the death and and kind of the aspects of blood is so toned down whether that's like mpaa restrictions but like even after this the king gets killed and you you don't really see blood you barely see any blood on anyone really who dies and i could see a much more dramatic version of this finale where it's just like so bloody and they're stabbed multiple times and like the queen is vomiting blood like i could just see it (laughs) maybe that's just way too over the top and too much but I think that could just intensify this entire scene even more. But I, I really love this scene. It's one of my favorite scenes probably in the entire movie, The Duel. No, I think there actually is merit to wanting that because, again, if you're thinking about adaptations in Shakespeare, wouldn't there be some kind of gore to most of these deaths? I mean, there's some pretty graphic stuff that happens in some Shakespeare plays. Not like, you know, not as much as this, but like if you were to go that full route, you definitely could have. And I'm, I'm sure there are that are adaptations of Shakespeare plays that really go that extra length to be as gory and as authentic to the time as possible. So going back to the story, uh, three of them are poisoned. Hamlet's like, Oh shit, I was right. Claudius was doing this. And he does this just crazy like monkey move and just jumps off the top of like a rampart onto Claudius and just starts stabbing him. And, and honestly, like the one thing that it reminded me of was, I think you're going to laugh at this was like in inglorious bastards when they're shooting Hitler, it felt like just like, a, like <laughs> over the top, yeah, yeah. Like over the top, like puppet that they're like destroying. And like, that's how it felt with him stabbing uh, Basil Sidney uh, playing Claudius. You know, it just felt like it was just this puppet that he was just like, eh, eh I'm going to get you. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. It really felt like so satisfying though, where you don't see him stab him. You just kind of see him forcefully doing it. And it's like, finally it's that like pop. It's that, almost climax to his character where he finally is just like oh my god i wanted to stab this man for so long and you just really see him explode and i think that's why olivier is so powerful and i think that's why he kind of pulls off hamlet so well and, and yeah i really loved that uh, attack and that death and i think i even saw that they really didn't want olivier to do that jump because it was like pretty high up it was like six feet high and they were like you're gonna hurt yourself and we're like not gonna be able to finish this movie and i think he did uh, end up doing it and he ended up like knocking out the teeth of the stuntman for yeah. the king because he like jumped and st- stabbed him too hard. So I think that's again, Olivier's dedication and maybe going a little bit too far, but uh fun, yeah, fun little fact. Yeah. Maybe just a little too far. So, uh, so he, he kind of gets his revenge at the, or he does get his revenge at the end. And then Hamlet starts to die and he, his last line of the film and, uh, that I really like, and I don't know why I like this, but, his last line is the rest is silence and then he's he dies and then uh then horatio is the one to be like bring him like get people to carry his body and so they bring him through elsinore so again the film ends on these crazy crane shots and then there are cannons firing which adds just some like this like i don't know it's like a soldier's like funeral type of thing and he's ascended to the top of the keep of the castle and then it just says the end, uh, you know, on this like, <laughs> you know, out, you know, far out shot of, of, of the castle and his body being placed there. And it ends this film on a very like downer note. 
but that is kind of how the play also ends is a tragedy but it was a pretty epic way to end it as well it is yeah and i want to ask you two different things i want to talk about hamlet's death and in particular and and his look and and in relation to another film but first i want to ask you who is your favorite death I, i love a good death performance i love the different ways actors try to handle it how dramatic it is how subtle it is i've always loved a good death scene even really bad performances i i they're they're great to rewatch so who's your favorite death performance uh oh man i i was not ready for this <laughs> well i'll i'll start then and okay, let you yeah, think about yeah, it yeah you go i definitely think it's hamlet and i obviously he has these beautiful ending kind of lines that really kind of impact and end his character really perfectly he's almost happy to die in a way where this struggle is finally over with he's finally almost redeemed in the way and and proven right by his death and he doesn't really care he's kind of succeeded in his mission already and i wanted to mention another film while you think about this and how the ending to me i'm a really big fan of ridley scott especially the 1982 film blade runner and how at the end of that film such an iconic ending and a really iconic death with Roy, the main kind of... Uh, oh my God, one of the best scenes. One of the best <laughs> scenes. And now I want to bring this up to you if you thought about this, but this is what I first thought about it, and then I thought about it even more. And, and some of Hamlet's lines is like... Uh, repeat the same line again about silence. The rest me. is silence. The rest is silence. And I felt it was so similar to the way that the Roy android in that film kind of dies and how part of your, your tears like become rain or something along those lines where... Tears if, and rain. Yes, oh. like, like tears and rain. And it felt like a direct kind of analogy or kind of influence from Hamlet's death where he's a sympathetic character in a way and he's kind of happy to die. He's like finally shutting down and and uh, he's experienced all the things he wants to experience but he's kind of feels like he, he lived a valid life and he's happy to kind of end it. So I felt the kind of connection in between that and also you have like he's got the blonde hair, there's rain at this point but it, it just felt like very similar and maybe Ridley Scott kind of drew directly from Hamlet or this film. Well now I just looked up that speech and I just got chills because every time I, I like I, I watch that movie and that scene I always get chills but it, it does feel very Shakespearean. I'll go very quickly. I've seen things that you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears and rain, time to die. And like I know Blade Runner isn't the best picture winner, but like that little... It's mon- beautiful. It, it feels very Shakespearean. So like time to die, the rest is silence. Yeah, like, really similar. It, right? it, that is very similar. I, I did not pick up on that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring... Blade Runner and that that amazing model into this podcast. I guess Hamlet would be like the the death that is very has acted the best. But then I also really like Gertrude's death. You know, just like she does make that sacrifice. If you want to look at it as she knew the poison was there, so it that's a very noble death in and of itself. And yeah, so the film ends on this down note and. It's kind of like the end of like this conversation about Hamlet. I did not think that we would have like this much to say about it. I think there's a lot more that you can say about it and I, specifically about the story. But again, like we wanted to focus more on the actual film adaptation itself. And from all technical aspects and storytelling elements, it's like ease all around, I would say, for the most part. Yeah, I would definitely agree. Yeah. And I... I want to end it just, I think we honored the film really well and, and the performances and really just how great the cinematography is for me. And I wanted to ask you another question that's related to Hamlet, but uh, we've seen so many actors, you know, you mentioned uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and other actors that have like, you know, dreamed to play Hamlet or have played Hamlet on stage or off stage. And I'm curious now, say in 2022, we have a new adaptation of Hamlet. 
who do you think should play Hamlet? We, we don't have to go into the rest of the cast. Oh, my God. But I'm curious. <laughs> I'll lead with mine. Okay, you go first. And I... I think the Dune adaptation that we just got with Timothy Chalamet. You fucker. I was just yeah, going to say Timothy I just, Chalamet. I think he's perfect. He's like frail. He's small. He feels like someone who could be 18, could be that young, but still have that like rage and passion inside of him. Well, it's funny you bring that because The King, which is on Netflix, is yeah. about Henry V, which yeah. is basically an adaptation, an adaptation yeah. of, of Shakespeare in that play. So I was going to say Timothy Chalamet. Oh, man, but... I don't know. I think that probably is the best person for like right now that it would work. Yeah. The then, hot star. that Right. But perfect, then I also yeah. think of like other like Shakespeare plays. I really like Richard the third. I said that before. And uh, I think Andy Serkis would be an awesome Richard the third. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Like now at his age too, being yeah. older and gray hair and stuff. Oh yeah. Like I, would I, love that. I, I would love to see that. I, I would like to see more Shakespeare plays, but it also doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win an Academy award. So why don't we jump into the 21st Academy Awards? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences presents the Academy Awards of 1948. In just one moment, we will bring you the Academy Orchestra playing the Star-Spangled Banner for the crowd assembled here in the Academy Theater in Hollywood, California, from where our broadcast tonight is emanating. The 21st Academy Awards were held on March 24, 1949 at the Academy Theater in Hollywood, California. This year's show was hosted by Robert Montgomery, and this is the first Academy Awards ceremony with a new category for Best Costume Design. The ceremony was moved from the Shrine Auditorium to the Academy's own theater, primarily because the major Hollywood studios had withdrawn their financial support in order to address rumors that they had been trying to influence Voters. So before we jump into the categories, I just want to ask your thoughts, Ben, on uh, what do you think about them changing the theater? It's not too big of a deal, but it kind of plays into like there's more and more as we go year after year that there's manipulation going on. There's maybe people getting paid for awards. How do you feel about this change? And do you think it's that uh, that much of a big deal? Um, I it, I don't think overall, like from a, a very quick look at it, it's not like that big of a deal. But if you were to to start drawing more conclusions about it and to maybe create your own narrative that like maybe there is some influence that is going on. I, I mean, I, I, there definitely is. There definitely was, and there definitely still is some sort of influence, whether that I don't think it's a monetary thing, but maybe it's a scratch your back. You scratch my back type of thing, especially with voting nowadays. It's so political. So it's just, again, the Academy being the Academy and, and it's always going to be that way. I think it's just going to be a politics game uh, through, throughout uh, throughout the time of the Academy Awards. But let's move on to the honorary awards given out that year. The first one was the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, and that was given to Jerry Wald. The Academy Juvenile Award goes to Ivan Yandel. And Yandel was given this special juvenile award for his performance in the film The Search. And by the time that this was announced in March 1949, he returned home to Prague. Czechoslovakia and the the communists had already taken over the government at this point and they would not allow Yondel to travel back to the United States to collect the Oscar and the Golden Globe that he received for his performance. So they had to eventually, you know, take it directly to him and the film's director Fred Zinnemann accepted the Oscar on Yondel's behalf at the Academy Award ceremony. So, you know, we've seen a couple of references of that, but we have another missing attendee, which is always a weird kind of interaction on stage. Best Foreign Language Film, which this wasn't its own category yet, but they did give an honorary award, went to Monsieur Vincent, which was from France. And the Academy Honorary Awards go to Sid Grauman, 
as the master showman who raised the standard exhibition of motion pictures. You could think about the Grauman Theater that's in L.A., one of the most kind of iconic Chinese theaters that are in Los Angeles. And we have Adolf Zucor. And he is a man who had been called the father of the feature film in America for his services to the industry over a period of 50 years. And then finally, we have Walter Wagner for his distinguished service to the industry and adding to its moral stature in the world community by his production of the picture Joan of Arc. Best special effects went to Portrait of Jenny to Paul Eagler, Joseph McMillan Johnson, Russell Shearman, and Clarence Slifer. Special audible effects to Charles L. Freeman and James G. Stewart. Uh, the film was based on the 1940 novella by Robert Nathan. The film was directed by William Dietrichley, who directed The Life of Mio Zola, and was produced by David O. Selznick. Best film editing goes to Paul Weatherwax for The Naked City. This is Weatherwax's first of two Oscars in this category, and that includes a later on win in 1956 for the Best Picture winner around the world in 80 days. Best costume design color went to Dorothy Jenkins and Barbara Karinska for Joan of Arc. This is the first year that the costume design award was given out. Uh, this is Jenkins' first of three Oscars when she retired in 1990. She once summed up her designing as, I can put my world down to two words, make beauty, it's my cue, and my private passion. And this was Karinska's only career win. Best costume design black and white goes to Roger K. Fears for Hamlet. This is the first time, as Ben said, costume design is added, and this is Fuhrer's first of second Oscar of the evening. And he's actually a frequent collaborator with uh, Olivier, and this is a collaboration that they've had back and forth with many Shakespeare productions uh, on stage and on film. And Hamlet was actually the only Best Picture nominee this year to also be nominated for Best Costume Design in Black and White. Best Cinematography Color went to Joseph Valentine, William V. Skull, and Winton C. Hoke to Joan of Arc. This is Valentine's first and only career win out of five nominations. It was actually one of his last films that he made, and he had actually worked the previous year on Alfred Hitchcock's Rope. So this is Fall. This is Skull's first and only win out of nine nominations. And Hoke, uh, he was a lab technician who contributed to the development of Technicolor before becoming a cinematographer in 1936. His understanding of the color process led to him being hailed as one of Hollywood's premier color cinematographers. Hoke never made a film in black and white, and he and for Hoke, he's this is his first of back-to-back -back wins uh, this year and the following year, which actually would not be matched by a cinematographer until John Toll when he picked up Oscars for The Legend of the Fall and Braveheart from 1994 to 1995. Best Cinematography Black and White goes to William Daniels for The Naked City. This is Daniels' only career win out of four total nominations. And a fun little fact is that he was supposedly Greta Garbo's personal lens bin for all of her iconic outfits and paparazzi photos. Yeah, so no uh, no Hamlet nominated in this category for Best Cinematography, and um, I think that's dumb. I think that's pretty unbelievable, to be honest. I think this is some of the most like modern, in terms of visual movement of the camera, I think this is some of the most advanced movement that we've seen so far. I mean, you could maybe look back and, and look at like Sunrise and how that camera work was really phenomenal and how much it moved and was not just a, a stagnant film, but this was, I couldn't believe it. And it felt like we were watching a steady cam work from someone who like had just filmed this or who has the technology of today and, and how some of those shots were achieved and the beautiful transitions that they use with the cinematography. Yeah. Totally deserved to at least be nominated, let alone maybe even a win here for that. 
Best Art Direction, Set Direction, Color went to The Red Shoes. Art Direction by Hein Hockroff and Set Direction by Arthur Lawson. This is Hockroff's only career win. His designs in The Red Shoes are preserved at the MoMA in New York City and the British Film Institute in London. And this is Lawson's only career win. Best Art Direction, Set Decoration, Black and White goes to Art Director Roger K. Fears and Set Decorator Carmen Dillon for Hamlet. This is Fear's second win of the evening, as previously mentioned, and Dylan's only career win. And she initially worked as an architect and a designer, and was actually eventually invited to design the cover of the newly formed Electrical Association for Women. Best sound recording went to The Snake Pit to Thomas T. Moulton. This is Moulton's third of five career Oscars, and this is first of three consecutive wins from 1948 to 1950. The film starred Olivia de Havilland as the film recounts the tale of a woman who finds herself in an insane asylum and cannot remember how she got there. I would love to watch that film. Best original song goes to Buttons and Bows from The Pale Face, music and lyrics by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. This is Livingston's and Evans' first of three career wins over the course of their collaborative career, and the two actually met at the University of Pennsylvania and were nominated to the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Best scoring of a musical picture went to Easter Parade to Johnny Green and Roger Edens. This is a Judy Garland and Fred Astaire film. Green was nominated for an Oscar 13 times and he won the award for the musical uh, score of Easter Parade, An American in Paris, West Side Story, and Oliver. The the last of those three all being Best Picture winners. And he was also a producer for the short The Merry Wives of Windsor Overture, which won in the short subject category in 1954. Green was also the chairman of the music branch of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences, leading the orchestra through 17 of the Academy telecasts and a producer of television specials. Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Brian Esdale for The Red Shoes. Esdale was the first British composer to actually win an Academy Award for Best Original Music Score. Best Short Subject Cartoons goes to The Little Orphan, Fred Quimper, another one for Tom and Jerry, let's go. Though the cartoon was released in 1949, it won its Oscar the previous year, tying them with Disney's Silly Symphonies with the record of the most Oscars in this category. The Best Live Action Short Subject 2 Reel goes to Walt Disney for Seal Island. And Seal Island is a film that's kind of a nature documentary early on, and Disney himself actually wanted to carry this on as a docuseries called True Life Adventures. And uh, the Milots shot more than 100,000 feet of film and spent over a year filming Seals, which the film was mainly based on, and the total production cost for Disney was a little over $100,000. Best Live Action Short Subject 1 Reel Went to Symphony of a City to Edmund H. Reek. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Toward Independence. This is a film about the rehabilitation of veterans with spinal cord injuries. Best Documentary Feature went to The Secret Land to Orville O. Dole. It's about a United States Navy expedition codenamed Operation High Jump to explore Antarctica and to evaluate its potential for military operations in 1946. Best Screenplay. Now, this is a combined award this year, so we have the two screenplay categories combined, and this is kind of the precursor to what we'll see later on with the adapted screenplay. And the award for best screenplay goes to John Huston for The Treasure of Sierra Madre, based on 
the novel The Treasure of Sierra Madre by B. Traven. There's a famous line in the film that was rewritten to remove profanity, and that line is, Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. So I'm assuming, you know, maybe remove stinking, maybe add a couple other adjectives to that, and that was kind of toned down because of the Hayes Code and MPAA. And that line is actually a really famous line that's constantly misquoted as, We don't need no stinking badges. In 2005, the quotation was chosen as 36 on the American Film Institute AFI's 100 Years and 100 Movie Quotes. Huston's received 15 Oscar nominations in the course of his career, and he's actually the oldest person ever to be nominated for Best Director when he was actually 79 years old. And that is for the film Prezi's Honor from 1985. And he won two Oscars for directing and writing the screenplay for The Treasure of Sierra Madre. And then they decided to keep this stupid award, the best motion picture story this year, which went to The Search, to Richard Schweizer and David Wexler. Schweizer was a Swiss screenwriter who won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay in 1945 for his work in Mary Louise, as well as the Academy Award for this year. The film was directed by Fred Zinnemann, which tells the story of a young Auschwitz survivor and his mother who searched for each other across post-World War II Europe. And what is interesting about all of this is that there is no Hamlet nominated for best screenplay or best motion picture story. So I still don't get the best motion picture story category because if you're allowing adaptations, which it has allowed in the past, why the fuck is Hamlet not nominated, at least in that category? Like what, what about Hamlet makes it not a motion, a best motion picture story at all? I'm wondering if it's just, there's been too many adaptations already and, to me, this award still feels like what is new to film, what is new to the motion picture industry, and it may be adapted or taken from another kind of source material, but it should be something new and fresh. And I guess there's, like we kind of start in the podcast here, that there's been hundreds of adaptations already and 1948 already at this point, so maybe it's just, you know, this isn't something they deem necessary to be added here. I say boo to that. Yeah, and I would disagree. I think it's a really interesting adaptation and... You know, it's a really iconic story here. Best Supporting Actress goes to Claire Trevor for the Key Largo as Gay Dawn. This is Trevor's only career win out of three nominations. And the Claire Trevor School of Arts at the University of California, Irvine, was named in Trevor's honor. Her Oscar and Emmy statuettes are displayed in the Arts Plaza next to the Claire Trevor Theater. Key Largo was the fourth and final film pairing of actors Bogard and Bacall after To Have and To Have Not from 1944, the Big Sleep from 1946, and Dark Passage from 1947. Best Supporting Actor went to Walter Huston for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre as Howard. This is Huston's only career win out of four nominations. This is one of his final film roles before his passing in 1950 at the age of 67. Huston's award this year was for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, was directed by his son, John Huston. He is the patriarch of the four generations of the Huston acting family, which includes his son, John, grandchildren, Angelica, Danny, Allegra, and great-grandchild, Jack. The Huston family has produced three generations of Academy Award winners, Walter, his son, John, and granddaughter, Angelica. So I actually watched The Treasure of Sierra Madre, and uh, Howard's a really interesting character. It's a fun film that's really dark and I think kind of references to a lot of modern filmmaking that we see and a lot of kind of action-adventure Um, with a really kind of dark tinge to it about a bunch of gold prospectors and how they kind of uh, experience the gold rush and how it kind of like changes you as a human and as a man. Best Actress goes to Jay 
Wyman for Johnny Belinda as Belinda McDonald. This is Wyman's only career win of four total nominations. Wyman's professional career actually began at the age of 16 in 1933 when she was signed to Warner Brothers. A popular contract player, she frequently played the leading lady appearing in films such as Public Wedding, Brother Rat, and its sequel Brother Rat and Baby, Stage Fright, So Big, The Magnificent Obsession, and All That Heavens Allows from 1955. Best Actor went to Laurence Olivier as Hamlet from the film Hamlet. This is the first time an individual directed themselves into an Oscar-winning performance. This film version of Hamlet was the only film in which the leading actor had directed himself into an Oscar until 1998 when Roberto Benigni directed himself to an Oscar win in, in Life is Beautiful. Olivier is the only actor to win an Oscar for a Shakespeare role. For his work in films, Olivier received four Academy Awards, an honorary award for Henry V, a Best Actor Award, and one which we will talk about in a few minutes as producer for Hamlet and a secondary honorary award in 1979 to recognize his lifetime of contribution to the art of film. He was nominated for nine other acting Oscars and one each for production and direction. There's a lot I think that can be talked about with Olivier's history. It is incredibly rich. He is one of the biggest stars of Hollywood from the 1940s and even decades on. He's one of the premier actors of Shakespeare of modern time. There's, literally no dispute against that and so again just to bring it back to you john and to just bring it back to the film hamlin his performance just to give it some more praise do you think like this is like deserved you know for him to win i know you just watched the treasure of the sierra madre i know people will talk about humphrey bogart should at least should have been nominated that year but Lawrence olivier as hamlet is just it's huge there's so much depth to it that it feels very appropriate to give this to him yeah, Bogart definitely deserved a nomination for sure. He plays a kind of different character than what well, we've usually seen him in, especially in Casablanca. He's drastically different, and he's one of those performances where he like drastically is a different person by the end of it, which is you know always fascinating to watch as an actor, and I think that's definitely something that's carried along in, in film history, and we love seeing roles like that. But come on, I think giving him the best actor is simply deserved based on being the director of the project as well. You know, it's it's insane to even get to that level of performance, to, to be believable, to hit your marks on the ground, to make sure that you're doing every single nuanced detail while also being in charge of the entire production, being able to communicate to every single portion of the production while also knowing your lines, while also knowing your marks, while knowing what the scene is trying to do, who should have certain beats like there's so much to just a directing job and then to combine that and to, to know all the lines of uh, by heart and maybe that comes from years and years of practice you know being in on stage and, and performing Hamlet before this was adapted but it's just astonishing and I think that goes to show with just how little people have been nominated and how little men have been nominated while also being the directors of these pictures because it's ex extremely hard and you know, there's not many other people that we can even kind of like look to or, or relate to. I mean, maybe we have Orson Welles, who's certainly up there with being such a great director and, and actor. And maybe a most recent time you could look at like a, a Damon or even Kenneth Branagh that we've talked about in reference to Shakespeare as well. Yeah, I mean, you can also point to like other people like with, uh, with Dances with Wolves. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Well, you, know, Dances with you also have Braveheart, but it is a very yeah, rare. Yeah, Mel Gibson for sure. Yeah, but it's very, but they, they didn't win actor. For, no. for those years and so the fact that he's winning best actor for for this year and for this role is very important and kind of a very odd thing 
Which leads into the best director category, John. The best director goes to John Huston for The Treasure of Sierra Madre. This is Huston's second award of the evening and his second of his career. And he was nominated previously for The Maltese Falcon, 1941, Sergeant York, 1941, The African Queen from 1951, and Moulin Rouge from 1952. John Huston directed two films in this awards year for which his actors won Oscars. His father, Walter Huston, in The Treasure of Sierra Madre, and Claire Trevor for Key Largo. But I wanted to first tell Ben, you have to see this movie. This, you know, usually we don't have that much time to watch previous winners or other best picture. And The Treasure of Sierra Madre, I think, was a, a big film at the time. A lot of people loved it. And it was kind of the runner up for most people, if not what should have won that year. Um, it's a really dramatic film where you have these three men, like I said, and they're they're looking for gold and how it corrupts them and changes them. And it's got this booming Max Steiner score and it's got beautiful cinematography and it has a lot of actual it's based in Mexico and it has a lot of Mexican characters. And I found it really kind of progressive in the way that they just speak Spanish in the film. And there's definitely issues of translation between the characters. They don't give you subtitles because it's just kind of dependent on that character and I guess it's kind of putting you in the shoes of of not being able to understand this and having this cultural difference but I thought that was really cool and interesting from a 1948 film and how it just kind of lets you dive deep into into the film and yeah it was a really fun time and it's a fun watch and I think it's it's definitely a lot more digestible than our best picture winner here but Ben I'll let you carry on and and lead the way here best motion picture it is a signal honor to the winner of the 21st award for the best motion picture of the year that the Oscar should be presented by Miss Ethel Barrymore. I'm deeply honored to present this award. I believe that the public, as well as the members of the Academy, realize what miraculous teamwork goes into the making of great motion pictures. The best picture encompasses the finest skills of every craft the finished product playing in thousands of theaters, hundreds of thousands of performances, gives millions of people the richest entertainment on earth. Each fine motion picture leaves an indelible mark upon the memories of those who see it. And in time, when the year 1948 is called to mind, among the important and nostalgic memories will be the film chosen here tonight. The nominated pictures are Hamlet, J. Arthur Rank, Two Cities Film, Universal International British, Johnny Belinda, Warner Brothers, The Red Shoes, J. Arthur Rank, Archers, Eagle Lion, British, The Snake Pit, 20th Century Fox, Treasure of Sierra Madre, Warner Brothers. And the winner, Hamlet, J. Arthur Rank, Two Cities Film. <laughs> Speaking as a stand-in, I wish to say on behalf of Sir Lawrence the tremendous gratification it is to be selected by a jury of one's peers. I am sure that Larry, who lived and worked amongst us for so many years, can look back on the rewards and the plaudits of the world that have fallen to his lot recently, to the knighthood by his king, to all the various rewards that have come to him, none can be more touching or more gratifying than one of this kind from his own profession. So let us, may I join with you to congratulate him on this award 
and to congratulate ourselves in having chosen him twice this evening. Thank you. Hamlet was the only film to have won both the Golden Lion and the Academy Award for Best Picture until The Shape of Water in 2017. And it is also the first non-American film to win the Best Picture Academy Award, which technically makes it the first international feature film to win the Best Picture Award. I hate including Britain as part of an international feature because it feels so entrenched in Hollywood now. But it is an accomplishment in of itself that this is the first again international film to win best picture so before uh before we get into our final thoughts and and rounding up uh everything let's get into some uh some stats and figures so hamlet has a 95 percent on rotten tomatoes with an average rotten tomatoes rating of 8.58 the top critics percentage give it a 75 percent but their average rating is a 10 out of 10 the audience score is an 80% and their average rating is a 3.93. IMDb has a 7.6. Metacritic gives an 82. It won four total awards out of seven nominations that evening. So, John, is Hamlet worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1948? I would say it's certainly worthy. I think the technical elements, especially the cinematography, I found really near and dear to my heart. I, I love this weird omniscient character that is our camera essentially that kind of guides us through and I think that alone and how much it progresses what we've seen so far in the best picture winners immediately deserves it. Plus we have the, the producer, actor, director, that amazing combination which, you know, you don't really see that very often and that the way it comes together and actually is very complete while also being new and different and, and going beyond just the literature, I think it is certainly worthy. What do you think, Ben? I think it is an incredibly worthy movie, and I gave it a 94 out of 100, this film. I really find nothing terribly too wrong with it. Um, I think the things I did take it away for was some of the other actors in the cast. I was not a big fan of Ophelia as some other people, but I was able to kind of look past it and still appreciate the work as Shakespeare. I, I Again, this goes back to the whole intro and my whole question of, like, is it fair? I ultimately don't know. But if it is fair or not, I'm going to give it a 94. So you can look at that how you will. I just think that this film aesthetically is beautiful. It works in so many ways. The lighting design is incredible. The costumes are great. The set design is great. And then on top of that, the cinematography, it, it just it guides you through it. There's so much depth and, and psychological aspects that's added to this film that would then lend itself to future Shakespeare productions and to future adaptations of Hamlet. And uh, I look forward to when Hamlet is going to be done again because I would like to see it. This one bring its own influence to that. So our average ratings out of 21 movies, actually 22 movies so far, John, you have, you have a 70.2 and I'm at a 76.6. Actually, we'll round up to a 76.7. So still a little lower because of some movies. Definitely Gentleman's Agreement brought us down again from last week. So that's kind of it on Hamlet. I'm... When I again looking at all these movies of all the best picture winners, when I first saw this list, seeing Hamlet on there made me smile and made me feel like okay, like maybe sometimes they do get it right, and and that's more because it's an honor to Shakespeare himself, to this writer, this literature that we have as a culture and around the whole world that so many people have taken and adapted and and loved and and just absolutely been engrossed with. So 
I think it's great that there's at least one Shakespeare film out of all the Best Picture winners, and I really think that this production of it is absolutely fantastic. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to give about Shakespeare and Hamlet, John? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I I actually didn't say my rating, which was actually an 82, and, and for how much I praised the film, I think some people might think, well, that seems pretty low. I gave Casablanca, for reference, like an 88, and, and uh, some other films are kind of around there, like uh, Going My Way in 83. Um, so some people might find that a little crazy, but to me, it's Shakespeare is not my favorite in terms of just the base text. And when I saw Hamlet, I was actually the opposite of Ben. When I saw it kind of on the list of films that we were working to, I was dreading it. And I was really just not wanting to jump into something so dense. And, and Shakespeare is just not my favorite kind of form of literature. And it's not my favorite form of dialogue. I prefer much more modern and, and naturalistic dialogue. But I found something really charming about this film and really interesting in the way it was constructed and and all these different elements that really come together in something that feels almost experimental in the way that it's it's telling such a simple story that a lot of people know already at this point so that's all i really got to say the only thing i really want to wrap this up is that ben this is a podcast of two men who can't just make up their minds you know to be or not to be john to podcast or to not podcast (laughs) that is that question that is that question so Thank you for listening to Worthy. We appreciate you guys. And it's really incredible being 21 episodes in. Can't wait to be 22 episodes into this. So I'm Ben. And I'm John. And And this this is Worthy. Worthy. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die to sleep no more and by asleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. It is a consummation devoutly to be wished to die, to sleep, to sleep. A chance to dream. Thanks for listening to Worthy. The breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to WorthySubmissions at gmail.com. That's WorthySubmissions at gmail.com.